Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SOSMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 58. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. My name is David McCraney. I will be your host, and usually we open the episodes with sort of a cold open or we go right into the topic, but this time I'm going to talk to you for a second and give you some updates because this is sort of a rerun episode. It's not sort of, it is. I'm rerunning a, uh, I'm rebroadcasting an interview from episode 13 with Clive Thompson all about technology and how it is not making us dumber. It is not making us uh, have shorter attention spans or be less connected to one another. It's doing exactly the opposite of all of those things. We're more connected. We are getting smarter. We are getting better at being human beings thanks to technology. All your scary stuff is just uh, shaking your fist on the lawn and saying, get out of here, kids, with your crazy Instagram and your Snapchatting. It's a great interview. And so many of the things we talked about in the interview have come back up again and have made me kind of go on these tangents of investigation uh, they've led to some of the things that I'm working on in my new book. I'll talk about that in a second. And I've had so much contact with Clive since. He's a great person and easy to bounce ideas off of, always willing to hear new stuff. And he's always available on Twitter. He talks to his fans a lot. And fans of him and fans of that interview are always bringing stuff up and telling us what they think or asking us questions. And he's been receptive to all that. It's a great interview, great topics that's coming up in a second. I mentioned a new book. Yes, I am currently working on my third book and this is going to be a much bigger project than the first two books. And I can't tell you exactly what it's about yet or the title or any of that kind of stuff, but uh, I will do that very soon in in an upcoming podcast. I'll let it all out and you'll hear all about what I'm working on. In fact, many of the interviews that are going to go into this book are, are going to be interviews that you also hear on the podcast. I will be interviewing people for the book and then I'll let you hear the audio for those interviews and you will be able to participate in this book coming together and it's just going to be awesome. And I'm in the very end of doing the stuff that I need to do 
that will allow me to tell you all about the book. But that's coming up soon, and I'm about to do so much traveling to put this together. It's going to be weird. The podcast is going to change for a while thanks to this, but I think it will be cool because it's, uh, I really want the podcast to almost be a sort of behind-the-scenes process of what's happening with the book. Now, why is this particular episode rebroadcasting an interview from the 13th episode? Because I am headed to Harvard University to give a lecture. And that's what I'm about to do as soon as I finish talking into this microphone. And it's going to be so cool. What I'm doing is something called Mind X, And I want you to check it out. You can check it out at the Mind First Foundation at Harvard. The website is mindfirstfoundation.org. MindX 2015 is the conference, and there's all sorts of speakers. They're going to be talking about genomics and uh, very, very, very scientific, super smarty stuff. But also this conference is going to have an emphasis on understanding the brain and the mind and behavior. And that's where I'm going to come in is I'm going to give a lecture about some of the things that happen in the, um, in the brain and mind that causes problems. And I can't wait to talk to all these super smart people about the science of stupidity, about the psychology of reasoning and judgment and decisions and justification. And that's what I'm going to do shortly. So that's why this episode is kind of weird. You need to check it out though. I told them that I would tell you all about it. It's the Personal Genome Project and the Mind First Foundation. They're both working together to make this conference. It's MindX 2015, mindfirstfoundation.org. This is a really cool conference full of cool speakers. And then on the back end, on the second day, they have a reverse science fair where you go around and collect information from the people who are walking around in the convention center. And you can free, freely take data from their projects to go into whatever project you're working on. So what I'm going to do at Harvard is collect a lot of interviews from people who you will then hear back on the podcast. So some of the speakers there, some of the staff and faculty at uh, Harvard, they're going to be on future episodes. That's coming up soon. Some other things I wanted to talk about before we go into the interview. <laughs> I, uh, I've had some great back and forth with some of the fans of the show. And I wanted to mention that the last cookie by the guy from Zimbabwe, Jonathan Whitaker. His mother sent us a cookbook after we told him that we were sending him a book. Uh, he uh, said that it's written for college students to learn to cook. So everything is easy and explained in full. He also writes, there are anecdotes sprinkled throughout and a bunch of local names, which won't make any sense. Enjoy. Cheers. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It is cool. I've already looked at it. It's great. There's a picture of her making stuff right on the front. It's that, all these recipes. She looks awesome. Jonathan Whitaker is awesome. Zimbabwe looks awesome. It's so neat. Also, I wanted to say there was one uh, cookie back, the bourbon cookie, the bourbon bacon cookie. Now, not only is the recipe now up, I got the corrected recipe from Terrence Rogers. He sent us an updated recipe and he wanted to let everyone know that he has a store now. This is sort of what he does now. It's called TBD Foods. Dot com. So check it out, tbdfoods.com. That's Terrence Rogers, the bourbon bacon cookie guy. He wanted you to check out his uh, entrepreneurial endeavor at tbdfoods.com. Okay, before we go on to the interview and then a new delusion news and a new cookie, I just wanted to briefly say thank you to everyone who has contributed so far on Patreon. We're very close to our first major milestone Patreon, if you don't know what that is, it's an ongoing Kickstarter type service. So you can become a patron of an artist 
or a project and either sustain it or help it to improve. We're trying to get enough money together so that we can hire a producer and a reporter or maybe a producer slash reporter. So that way we could have field segments like what you hear on radio lab or invisibilia or 99% invisible. I would like to have our version of going out and collecting stories and bringing them back to the podcast. But that really needs to be funded. Uh, and the advertising we currently have is not going to fund that kind of going out and getting stuff. So that's what Patreon is doing for us. We're very close to actually achieving that goal. We have 226 patrons right now. And I just want to say thank you. You get dividends. Of course, patrons are not only are they together making it possible for everyone who listens to the show to have free transcripts. And we're putting those transcripts out as quickly as possible. But also if you are a patron, you get the show with no ads in it. So patrons get something for their contribution. They get a show with no ads in it. And if enough people actually contribute, we'll make it so that the show doesn't have ads at all. We'll be 100% patron supported, but that's down the line right now. We're just trying to reach that first milestone. And I want to say thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. All right, coming up next, thank you for thank you for letting me info dump you so hard there, but uh, coming up next, an interview with Clive Thompson. But first, a word from our sponsor. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors, but for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. So if you're making money and you've got money and you want that money to work for you, Wealthfront will monitor your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting your dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. It's there in the background making money for you, making your money work for you. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront managing your investments, watching over them every day, what will you do with all of your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. And here's the disclaimer. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And now we return to our program. Let's introduce this man, Clive Thompson. Who is he? Clive Thompson is a journalist, and in 2002, he was awarded a Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT, and uh, he has a blog called Collision Detection, and he um, he writes a lot for Wired and New York Times Magazine, and he has this new book out that we're going to discuss right now. Uh, 
Uh, Clive Thompson, you wrote a book called Smarter Than You Think, and um, it's uh, this is a great book to come out right now. I like to, to imagine that the book is sort of, um, this is going to be something that people look back on. Uh, I love looking at that um, paleo technology stuff online where people predicted that in the future there would be a, uh, we'd have um, vessels made out of hot air balloons that would take us to our jobs and that sort of thing. And uh, I really like looking back on that sort of stuff. But I think that your book is sort of... Uh, protected in, in, a, in a special kind of way. When you read it, I think it's going to hold up as saying, this is where we were at this period of time in history, and this is the weird things that, these are the weird things that people thought at that time period. Um, that's a long introduction to a question that I'm going to ask, which is, um, right now there seems to be a whole lot of panic out there. Um, uh, you read everywhere people, and this has been going on for years, they, um, every year someone says something about Google or Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or smartphones or messing with our minds. And I just want to start, I just want to start with Google. Um, a lot of people, I even ask people on my Facebook page to, uh, pose questions to you. And the first, one of the first questions was, is Google making us dumb? <clears throat> is, uh, having access to Wikipedia and this ocean of information, is this somehow making us lazy intellectually? And so I would say your, your book seems to disagree in every direction possible, but what do you, <laughs> what, what, what do you say when people come right out the gate and ask that question? Well, it, it, it's, it's funny that they ask that they asked you that because that's, that's definitely the one, you know, uh, I get it. Um, you know, I, I get when I'm, when I'm walking around and talking about the book and, you know, or at a cocktail party and someone, you know, in a bar and someone, Here's about my book, and they're like, "Wow, so what about this?" And yeah, the 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 worry about mental laziness is is a really big one. The idea that um, because we you know we can sort of turn to Wikipedia or turn to our phone to, to get an answer to a question that that we're somehow sort of sl our, our brain is becoming slack like an, an empty wine bladder. Um, and uh, um, in a way, you know, the funny thing is when I started the book, I worried a little bit about that myself. Uh, um, I mean, I felt like everyone else this sense of wow, you know, I don't. I don't really remember phone numbers anymore. Like, is is that is that a sort of a metaphor or a metonym for the overall inability of my brain to retain things? Um, but the more I looked both at at sort of the way memory works, and this is something you know you 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 talk a lot about in in, in your work too. Um, the fragility of what I learned was the fragility of human memory is such that. We've we've sort of always been really terrible uh, at the details of everyday of 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 knowledge, you know, like we're really good at retaining the meaning of something. You know, we study something, we read about it, we talk about it with someone. We, you know, we're good at cementing the gist of it, but we're really bad at the details. Mm -hmm. um, and so, historically, we've had all these ways of of storing. Uh, you know the details, the stuff we want to remember. We think we think of a lot of it as happening, um, you know, in paper. Like you know, you know, we, we write this knowledge down in books, and we write it in, in you know, in, in articles, and we save them and store them so we can look at them. But the truth is, you know. Most of the knowledge we store that's outside of us is stored in other people. Uh, it, it's this thing called uh, transactive memory where, like, you know, I, I hang out with my wife a lot. I hang out with my friends, hang out with my workmates. And we gradually sort of subconsciously realize, oh, you know, you're better at remembering the details of state politics than I am. And I'm better at remembering, you know, Fahrenheit, you know, Celsius conversion. And, and she's better at remembering the plots of, you know, Three's Company. So... So we, we each sort of rely on each other to remember these details. And that's why, you know, if you've ever been in a, in a, in a relationship for a long time, you get in these weird fights where it's like, how come you can never remember, you know, where the tax forms are? And, you know, and the other person says, how come you can never remember the dates of my birthday? And, it, and that's because we're, we're actually using each other to help remember these things because our, our brains are dreadful, dreadful, the details. Um, and this has been something we've done for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, it's why 
socially we're smarter when we're around each other. You know, we, we, we actually, we're not just social thinkers, we're actually social rememberers. And so what started to happen was that, you know, for years, you know, again, we had these, you know, we had these cool technologies outside of our bodies, books and whatnot with knowledge stored, but we're kind of lazy. So we don't look at them very often. I mean, um, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, when I was a kid, I had a, I had a, we had an edition of it. And, and, you know, if you were, to make yourself look smart, you always had one. But you never looked at it. I mean, Encyclopedia Britannica, they did a, a study of their, um, of their users and found out that the average person, uh, the average user of Encyclopedia Britannica in print looked at it once a year. <laughs> Uh, so, because it's faster just to get a kind of partial answer from your, from your buddy yeah. nearby, uh, um, you know, now what happens? So there's a long way of answering your question. What started happening is so we've always done this. Our brains have always been bad at the details. Um, and, uh, what we started doing is now that we actually have these very f- much, much more fast paced devices, we can integrate them al- almost in the way of the social flow that we have people. Um, and so that's, that's great. And it's, you know, but with, with hazards, right? I mean, the, the great part is Wikipedia is better at remembering the details than my buddy is, you know, like, you know, how many drone strikes have there been in Pakistan? You know, he's, he's only got a rude guess at that. Wikipedia has the real answer, you know? Um, the downside is, you know, we re- since we're relying on these tools a little bit more, it's incumbent upon us to understand a little bit more of how they work, you know, um, to, you know, to educate and train ourselves. And that's something schools are starting to have to realize they have to do. These are going to be the cognitive tools the same way that libraries were and dictionaries were. And you have to learn how to use this stuff. Otherwise, it, you, know, you won't be as good at it, basically. So, so, so the, the long answer is um, if you're worried that your brain is bad at the details, um, your brain's always been bad at the details. It was, it was like that, you know, long before the internet yeah, came along. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember. I'm 45. I remember, I remember being around before the internet was there. Somebody asked a question, nobody had an answer. You just stared at each other and then the conversation <laughs> moved right. on. <laughs> right. It'd be like, uh, you know, um, Hey, uh, let's get, let's get down to brass tacks. And somebody says, Hey, what does that mean? Get, get down to brass tacks. And then if it's pre-internet, the, the next thing that happens is, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and every once in a while I'll be, I'll be in a completely non-internet uh, area. Uh, um, my mother is the, one of the most offline people on the planet. Uh, she lives in Northern Ontario. She's like 78. She only got voicemail like five years ago. Uh, never, never used a computer. So, my wife and I are up there at Christmas a couple of years ago and there's no internet at all. So we're like a week with no internet and our phones, you know, not getting service. So, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not doing that pinging thing. And I discovered what happened is that when you're unable to look something up, you, you think that it'll stimulate your curiosity in your brain. But what actually happened to me is it shut my curiosity down. Like we're, we were watching, um, uh, it's a wonderful life. And, you know, and, and we're looking at the woman who's, you know, co-starring and we're like, huh, I wonder what happened to her afterwards. And of course, you can't look it up. So you just, you know, you don't go any further. <laughs> and, and the 10th time that happens, what happens is your brain stops asking that question. Like I, ju- I just stopped wondering about stuff because there was, no, because there was, there was never an opportunity to get an answer. I saw, I, my curiosity just shut down, basically. And by the end of the week, I was just staring blankly at walls, you know. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I believe strongly, I say this in my book, that it's good to get away from the internet for regular periods. I mean, I go offline on the weekends because it's important to have these to sort of you know a sort of cognitive diversity you know enjoy the stuff that you get online but enjoy the stuff that's offline but a really prolonged period offline i mean i i i, I don't think it i don't think it stimulates any particular brilliance uh particularly so what is um why does this keep coming why do people keep worrying about this one, one of the things that keeps coming up in your book um and i've seen this in other places too i've written about it a little bit myself is that there's just no um 
this sort of like this cycle it's, uh, that comes around that has gone back to antiquity where um, whenever the, you can, you can put like a push pin in the timeline of human history and, um, and no matter where you put that push pin, you'll see that whatever just appeared, whether it's books or television or even like written language, uh, there will be people who will start uh, saying this is going to ruin everything. And then there'll be people who will put out that this is going to solve all human problems. And you sort of write how that neither prediction is ever really quite right or wrong. So, mm, yeah. so I guess it's a two part question. Why? Why does why do you think that keeps happening, and how is it neither right nor wrong? Well, uh, the reason why it keeps happening is, is 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 rooted in some of the biases that you you've written about in your books, which is that we we heavily overweight the present, like we heavily we heavily overweight the normal the normalcy and the persistence of what we're doing right now. We believe that the way that we grew up is the way things you know people always behaved, and there's something inherently normal about the way we communicate now. Um, and so anything new that comes along tends to freak us out. And and new media. Historically, generally, what they've done, more or less, is um, they, they sort of they've created a, a new surplus every time. They've created more communication, you know. So writing comes along, you know, three thousand, you know, five to three thousand years ago, and um, and it, and it, and it, it certainly produces this, this this eruption of externalized thinking, um, and. And so, you know, Socrates looked at this and he was like, wow, this is the death of memory. We're not going to bother to remember anything um, if, if, if we write things down. He was also worried about the death in a very interesting way of, um, of dialogue. Um, if, I write, if I write a book and give it to you and you look at the book and go, wow, I think this is stupid. You cannot argue with the book. The book cannot respond to you, right? And so for, for, the, for, you know, for Socrates, uh, knowledge was formed in debate. And uh, if you could not debate with someone and argue, you could not have wisdom. So, so he was, you know, he it basically it was a challenge to the way that he had done things. And and the same the same same pattern happens over and over again. He was sort of unable to realize that when we were able to externalize knowledge, we you know in books and writing, you know, we no longer had to remember everything. We would have recourse to accessing a much huger array. Uh, of of knowledge that that any individual could if they had to keep it in their fragile minds and so we we would get libraries and things like that he he, he wasn't it was he wasn't exactly wrong you know like he some of the things he was worried about were right you know like it's true that we stopped memorizing long streams of poetry and it's true that you couldn't argue with a book but there were benefits that came out of that that um that it took us a long time, but we, mac you know, we sort of maximized and we, we had this flood of books. So, so the same thing happens over and over again. Every media creates a surplus and we're never sure how we're going to deal with all the new stuff. And, and it's, it's not just new, it's usually more. I mean, you know, the Gutenberg Press comes along and there's an explosion of books and, you know, Gottfried Leibniz, you know, the mathematician basically says this is a barbarous flood that is going <laughs> to drown out the good stuff. And he, and again, he was sort of right. Like when, once you get, once you're in the, in the medieval period, you get more books than any individual can read. You have to start figuring out how to organize them. And so this is the exact flow, you know, surplus and then panic and we figured out how to organize it. You know, same thing happened with radio and the telephone. Um, same thing happened with, uh, uh, with TV and the internet. Um, so each time, and right now we're in the middle of this, of this, you know, how do we organize this stuff panic? Um, the, the, thing, the thing I find heartening is that even as the panics recur over history, so do the solutions. The, the people, the, the things we did in the 15th the 17th century to organize information are shockingly similar to what we're doing now. Um, back when they had, you know, books come along and more than anyone could ever could ever consume, they started uh, they started blogging. Basically, there was these guys who would create these things called florilegia, which were encyclopedias, and they would they would go through books and they would 
literally with scissors cut out like the best paragraph and paste it into this huge anthology that they wouldn't sell to a rich person as a way for them to access the best knowledge that right. was out there. Um, and that's exactly like blogging. Um, they also, you know, and, and scribes would go to would go to churches and sit down at these amazing, amazing priests giving amazing sermons. They would scribble down their notes and then circulate them later. They were live blogging the sermons, right? So all these all these techniques we do today are very similar to the way that we've dealt with panics before. Right. Um, so, so some of that, some it's surplus. The other one, the other one is that anything that changes the way that people socialize makes people really lose their crap. And there's a, um, there's a, there's an Intel researcher, uh, Genevieve Bell, who formalizes as, as three rules that I think is fantastic. And this is a great one to think about. She goes, why does some, why do some technologies provoke particular freakouts? And she says, well, it's whenever, it's whenever they change three things. It has to change um, the way we relate to space. The way, uh, uh, the way we relate to time and the way we relate to each other. And if you hit all three with a technology, people absolutely freak out and they think that you know, the world's going to end. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting is that you can, you can use those rules to predict what's going to happen. Like, why did we freak out about the mobile phone but not the fax machine? Well, the, fa- the, the, mobile, the mobile phone hit upon space, time, and the way we relate to each other. The fax machine hit upon space and time, but it didn't really change the way we relate to each other because it was never used as a person-to-person communications tool. So unless you honk all three of those buttons, um, you don't freak out. And, that, and uh, the internet slams all three of those oh, yeah. in, the most, in the most outrageous way possible. So that's some of what we see with those cycles. You know, long-winded answer. I love that. Uh, no, that's great. I love that. Um, I remember watching um, Back to the Future 2 and how there, how there was a fax machine in every room. And um, Marty McFly gets fired via fax machine. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and, yes. They, and they were so yes. like, but it's, that's what's well, interesting about that. And you see that through all these uh, things that try to predict how we're going to interact with the, with the future and with technology is that, um, you know, behavior is pretty set. I mean, it, it changes mm-hmm. slow, That's right. slow That's right. very slowly over like evolutionary time. But like um, as the technologies keep churning, the, are the same sort of behaviors are at play and, and the same biases, the same responses. Yes. So yes. like um, we and what's weird is sometimes a technology will come along that will take a behavior that used to cost a whole lot to uh, display or to enjoy yes. and will just reduce the cost of that so low that all of a sudden it explodes. I talk whenever I have a chance to talk in front of people and they wonder about politics and stuff, we, I mentioned that it's almost kind of like an invasive species that, uh, you know, confirmation bias is a great example of like confirmation bias never had anything like Google to, uh, <laughs> yes, to, yes, exactly. To, and once, once you pair confirmation bias with Google, you get this totally new way of, of being yep. a person. And that's going yep. to happen all the time whenever new technology comes along and plays with these old behaviors. So it's it's good to know about those old behaviors because new technology is going to interact with the same behavioral routines over and over again. I, 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 no, I, absolutely. Confirmation bias is, is really one of the big dangers of the internet, right? I mean, it, we always had a... It, although I, I go back and forth in this because I've had some political thinkers say to me, um, you know, homophily, you know, that right, see, right. like seeking out like is, is a big problem you know we 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 you know that's 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 a type of confirmation bias we, we seek out people that agree with us and and i was sort of like well you know yeah don't we kind of do that you know more now online they're kind of like well you know don't discount how homophilic the physical world was beforehand mm-hmm. i mean like when you were limited to what your dad told you at the dinner table for your political knowledge um <laughs> things were pretty bad like they, there was there was almost no chance of colliding into a seriously alternative opinion in 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 your in your small town um 
even people that, uh, you know, and where studies have shown, Dana Boyd did this great study where she looked at a, a Twitter debate over the um, really one of the most uh, amazingly uh, politically charged thing you could possibly imagine, which is like uh, uh, the killing of George Tillard, the abortion doctor. Um, and she studied uh, uh, Twitter conversations about it because there was, there was a hashtag made for it, right? But what happened is that the, the hashtag, because it was essentially, you know, just the Tillard shooting, whatever, wound up. Uh, bringing all these very pro and very anti-abortion people together uh, in, in this conversation. And when she analyzed the actual interactions, like a, a, a significant like mi minority, I think like 40% or, or thereabouts of the interactions were, were across that divide. Now, as she points out, they were not great interactions because Twitter is not really a tool for deliberative democracy, right? Um, but, uh, but there's no way in heck these people would have in their own communities been, been even aware of each other's existence. So there there are some situations in which um, it, it's very it's very context dependent uh, whether or not any particular tool reinforces or works against confirmation bias. I think. Yeah, um, I think, and my thinking on that is sort of coming full circle. But and I was glad to see this in your book because I was like, hey, that confirms my beliefs. Um, but it was it was that <laughs> uh, sort of like. Um, we're being slammed into each other more than ever before. So that, yes. that means we're being challenged. Our opinions and our, our political beliefs are being challenged more than they ever have been before. And that's, that's got to change things about uh, the way we see each other, the way we see yes. the world. Um, you know, you can't just sit in the deep South and think what you think based off your culture without also knowing what the rest of the country thinks too. Yeah. And yeah. that, that is weird, you know? Um, and you, what you write about, I, I love this part of your book. This is so cool. The idea that, um, because of what you call public thinking, that these old notions, uh, these like old Greek notions of dialogue and debate and rhetoric are now flowing back into our daily lives because we end up in arguments more often than we ever have before. Or at least we, we can, on our social media and everything, we confront people who... Yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. Uh, so I think that um, what's neat about that is that and it, not only do we have to relearn those um, rules of logic and uh, relearn the rules of rhetoric and everything and find out that they've always been around. But we also, I think that encourages, it's encouraged a lot of recent interest into wanting to know, well, why do people think this way when we get into cook? Yes. So yes. I think that's yes. sort of part of the surge of um, interest in these. There's so many books about cognitive biases and stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. One of the reasons, I think one of the reasons why we've seen in the last 10 years a surge of interest uh, in your books and other books about cognitive biases and the processes of thinking is that we, we, we're able to see thinking more than we ever could before. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 it's on display. People are out there. They're, they're talking about their stuff. They're, in, they're arguing about stuff in, in forums. They're blogging about it. They're, they're conducting conversations on uh, underneath, you know, photos and Instagram, right? I mean, there's just this explosion of writing. I, I tried to quantify this in my book. It, it, total back of the, of the napkin uh, um, number, but I, I pulled it together by talking to a bunch of internet services and academics, and I, I, I figured that there's roughly 3.6 trillion words being written a day, you know, which which is pretty much equivalent to the the size of the uh, of of the Library of Congress every day. Now that's obviously not all good words. I mean, it's probably Sturgeon's law, like 90% mm -hmm. of it's crap. But but the um but but the 10% that the that's at the top of the peak is is easily as good as stuff that I'm paid to write. Um, and, uh, and, and it's simply more visible. Like, um, I, like, you know, I, I think this is also why subcultures have become more relevant. When I was, um, when I was playing video games, you know, in the nineties, you know, uh, I, I would, I was aware that like at any one point in time, there's like 
there was there was like four million people playing Counter Strike at any one point in time, right? And and then and I didn't really watch TV. I just didn't watch any TV. I, I stopped watching it in college. And so I'd open up Entertainment Weekly, and the cover would be you know Friends, like you know the whole nation's talking about Friends. And I'm like, <laughs> the whole nation's not talking about Friends. I I don't watch the show. And and at any one point in time, there's more people playing Counter Strike than there are watching Friends. And so I became aware that like there can be these huge vibrant niches that mainstream traditional coastal media just completely ignore. And so what happened over the next decade is that the internet arrived and people began talking about stuff that they're interested in. And it turns out that everyone is way weirder than we ever imagined. Right. Uh, and, the, and the stuff they're interested in is stranger and they're all finding each other and they're setting up, you know, their you know, Ravelry knitting, knitting forum, 500,000 people in there talking about knitting, you know. This is not something that, you know, the New York Times or Entertainment Weekly or the Washington Post had on their agenda for, you know, a cultural conversation. And to me, uh, you know, people worry about the fragmenting of culture, but, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 f I frankly uh, think there's something delightful and, and powerful and wonderful about the explosion of this thinking because uh, we, are, we are simply more aware of the diversity of human passion right now, which I think is great. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's a lot of the critics of this sort of thing think that it's being created by the technology, but and it's usually... If, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's usually it's just being revealed or enhanced or amplified, um, not necessarily created out of nothingness. Um, I, I yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, like I, you know, uh, there were always weird little subcultures. I would, you know, as a kid, I was a nerdy kid. I was into origami. Uh, um, I, I couldn't find really anyone, you know, at my at my high school or. Or, or middle school or elementary school interest in origami. But by the time I got to the University of Toronto, you know, it's 45,000 students, um, you know, there's an origami club. So you, once you have 45,000 people, you, there is you, that, that subculture emerges. Once you get the internet together and you give them these, these sort of new literate tools like YouTube um, and animation to help, you know, illustrate how you do these folds, everything just goes absolutely bonkers because now all the Russian origami people and all the Japanese origami people and the people in, in Atlanta are in origami and I are all talking online. And, and you know what's really interesting, too? This cuts this question we were talking earlier about political bias. Um, uh, Joseph Kahane is this wonderful um, researcher who looks at sort of, I guess, exposure to different walks of life and different worldviews. And he finds that Facebook is, for, and he looks at teenagers, it's, it's actually bad for, for exposure to diverse views. Um, and that's because you're, you're, again, it's homophily. You're mostly hanging out with the people you already know kind of reasonably well. Um, whereas whenever he, he followed a teenager's uh, wanderings into a community of interest, like their hobby, um, it massively opened up them to all sorts of different people from different walks of right. life. Now, now they're clustering, not about their friendship circle or their town, they're all there because they care about origami. And so I, I'm in these origami forums and people, you know, they get bored of origami after all. They start talking about politics, start talking about sports, start talking about like their sex lives. And it is just fascinating because they're actually quite civil uh, because they have this common interest. And yet they're from all, you know, octogenarians talking to 21-year-olds. And so for me, one of the things that I, I find uh, uh, frustrating with discussions of the online world is whenever people talk about, you know, why are comments so bad? Well, they're looking at the same nine or ten places. They're looking at newspapers. Newspapers have legendarily bad comments right. because um, they draw in all the kooks from their local communities and they don't do any moderation. Um, and they're also drive-by communities. Nobody's really interested in talking to each other. They, they want to talk to the paper. They want to yell at the world. But you know, I'm of the opinion the vast majority of online conversation is actually not happening in these highly visible, you know, um, because they're 
put on by famous organizations, um, places like, you know, newspapers, it's actually happening in these weird forums you've never heard of before. That when you peek into them, have, you know, 4,000 people all writing 15,000 words collectively a day, you know? And, 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 I, I, and, and those worlds, when you look at them, are, are not only charming and delightful, um, but they're, I think they're much more healthy uh, and they have much more interesting conversations between people than the, the sort of obvious stuff. And so this is, this is, a, this is a classic you know, frequency bias issue. You know, you, you, because you go to the local paper, you notice a conversation there, but you don't even think about the conversations that are happening outside, outside of that, that purview. Yeah. Um, and you, you speak a lot about how uh, we'll have to have, with all of these tools, with, all, with any new technology, you need um, sort of a new civics, you need a new set of guidelines that we can all uh, abide by that will help us um, communicate better and more um, uh, with more civility and better dialogue. And also you speak about uh, things like trommeling. I think that's not what you said. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. That tummeling, it's, it's a wonderful word. Basically, I mean, when I, when I, when I just, what I just said, I stand by, which is that newspapers have just dreadful comments. But this is not because of anything innate in I think in necessarily in human nature, the way that some people fear it is, it's because they haven't done any of the social work necessary to create a good conversational space. And, and that's, that's what these three internet thinkers, uh, Kevin Marks, Heather Gold, uh, Deb Schultz, they were, they, were, they were noticing that there are some forums that had amazing conversations, some that had toxic ones. What was the difference? Well, it turned out the difference wasn't anything but technology. There wasn't like some you know, button you can hit that restores civility. It was because in each of these places, there was someone who was, who was, who was doing the social work of, of uh, being in the threads uh, and being the host. They were, they were rewarding the good people, you know, talking to them, saying, hey, that's great. You know, you know, tell me more about that. And they were and they were punishing the the, the bad actors, either telling them you know you're being uh, you're being terrible or banning them. And when you and when someone's doing that social work, it's like it's like tending a social garden. You get the amazing stuff. Um, and so tumbling, the thing that's fun about tumbling is that it's 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 a new civic skill, right? And and you can teach it. And in fact, I've been in classrooms where. They basically, the smart teachers are like, look, the, you know, in the old days, we taught kids civics of how to write a letter to the editor, how to write a letter to a politician, how to engage in a debate, how to be a polite person when you're walking down the street, right? And so this is the new civics that we need to teach, which is the, you know, the comportment of yourself online, right. you know, how to, how to sort of, how to not respond to flames, uh, but to actually be polite in response to flaming. And that almost always diffuses the situation instead of ramping it up. And I've right. seen these teachers do this and it's fantastic. This is the new civics. It, it, you can teach it and it is being taught. Yeah. And, it, and we just happen to be in that transitional period where no one knows what to do exactly yet because it happens so quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. I love when I see someone just respond with a link to the YouTube video. That like, It's like an eight second video. It's like, it's okay to not like things. Just don't be a dick about it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's it's like, a, and people pay it forward. I mean, I think as soon as you see that, you're like, ah, oh, I was doing that. And then you'll do it to someone else in the future and it slowly propagates across, you know, whatever network you're in. And, and we, we also, we also have a long, um, a long social history of, 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 there being very tumultuous periods when a, when a new uh, communications protocol comes along. I mean, like, um, you know, you could go back as far as the, the, the telephone. There was, you know, enormous debate over what's a polite way to talk on the phone, what's a polite way to answer. Um, it was very unsettling to hear a half a log. Uh, um, there's, you know, there's this, if you, here's a great thing for listeners to Google, um, a telephonic conversation by Mark Twain. So it's Mark Twain listening to a telephone conversation <laughs> and he can, and he's like, I can only hear half of this and it's the weirdest thing I've heard in my life. And so it, it, 
it, it was really it was really unusual to feel that. Another another comparison might be cities. Like, um, you know, I, I, I early on in my book, I liken the internet to a migration from the rural area to the city. Mm-hmm. So, in the 19th century, you get the urbanization uh, of of the U.S. and of um, and of uh, London and whatnot, of the UK. And it was really unsettling to suddenly be living so close to people. And we had to figure out these new ways of interacting so that we could enjoy the serendipity um, and the creativity that comes from that density without just being worn down by all the social contact. Like how to carve out mental peace in the middle of a howling um, urban chaos. This is what Dickens wrote about. This is what everyone wrote about. And so, in some respects, it's exactly like that today. Um, and uh, and I think uh, I think what we're living the reason one of the reasons why it's unsettling right now is you know no one has those we're making those rules up right now you know we're figuring them out um, and you know we're, we're sort of getting it right only about half the time right. Um, so okay, there's before we run out of time, there's a couple of things I really wanted to ask you. First of all, uh, there's something you wrote about in your book that has stuck with me more than anything else. I keep telling other people about it, uh, and it's it's the fact that. Before we were all online, once you graduated high school or college, uh, well, most people just never wrote another paragraph for basically the rest of their lives. Um, yep. And so could you unpack that for us? What does that, what sure. does that mean? Well, what that, what that means um, is that we are, uh, because we moved from this period where almost no one wrote anything, um, unless, you're, unless you're paid to do it, unless you're a journalist or a lawyer writing a lot of memos, um, you know, most people graduated high school, college, never wrote anything. I asked my mother once, you know, uh, perfectly literate Canadian, but not online, you know, if, when's the last time you wrote a paragraph? And she was, we figured it out and it was like basically in the 70s, you know, <laughs> um, because if you don't need to, you didn't do it. And certainly the people that did writing, even if they did it for work, they were not doing it for their passion, for the stuff that they're interested in. They were not doing it to try and answer an intellectual question. So I think what's happening, um, when, I, when I looked at the, sort of the, you know, the, 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 the fairly well-known psychology of what it means to express yourself, um, to get your ideas out of your head and down on the page or on the screen, um, I, think this, I think what's happening is we're seeing this massive uh, increase in the, in the self-awareness of our of what's going on in our heads because we're, we're taking it outside of our heads. And we're seeing a lot of what's known as the audience effect. People, when they go in front of an audience, even of only one or two people, they suddenly have to like take what they're saying more seriously. And, and you know, they, 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 they sharpen the way they think. Studies show people write longer. Um, they write more complicated things. They remember what they're thinking about better because the, for, the act of writing it uh, taps into the generation effect. And it's funny, like, I always tell people, try this sometime. Find a friend of yours who's tweeting. Um, sit behind them and just watch. Don't talk. Because one of the funny things about watching someone tweet is you realize a lot of people, they start writing, you'll see them start writing a tweet and they'll stop and they'll erase everything. And they'll start again and they'll get four <laughs> words in and and they'll race two words and they'll go at it for like, it'll take them like, you know, two minutes to write a single tweet. And you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, I'm trying to get this right. You know, <laughs> like there's this, there's this, they're, they're, they're confronting uh, the fact that they're not quite sure what they're trying to say. And, and this is, this is what thinking looks like. So I, I think the externalization of all of our thinking, um, by and large has, has had this terrific effect because going before an audience makes you take what you're saying more, more seriously, particularly when you know they're going to come at you if they think you're dumb. Um, and uh, so th- that to me is, is, is really one of the keys. It, it runs throughout my entire book as, as probably one of the main effects, what it means to go from being a globe of mostly private thinkers to ones uh, that do a lot more public thinking. And it's just, I mean, every, like, even if I didn't write... Um, professionally like it's, I know that everyone I know is writing 
a paragraph or two every day about something that they enjoy. And as soon as you put something out there, it immediately gets a challenge. It's almost like um, interpersonal, you know, peer review immediately takes place. And, yes, uh, yes, yes. And then, yeah. uh, and people can fact check you and they can tell you, well, maybe you should, you didn't see it this way. And like that sort of converse, I mean, I, don't, I know that we haven't had these things for very long, but it's so strange to me that we don't remember the time before when nothing like that yep. was taking place every day. Yeah, I, I think I think it is. This is again. This is a, a classic bias of the sort that that you, you've you've spent the last couple of years unpacking. This is a classic recency bias, a present focus bias. Um, it's very hard to go back and remember, um, you know, what that world was like. Um, but I can tell you from my own experience. I mean, I've been doing journalism um, professionally for about twenty years now, and and I have, and it has the, the fact that the audience can now talk back to me. The fact that, the, and more importantly, that they can talk to each other about what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And so, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense they will say that to each other and I will witness them going, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. It has had this absolutely catalyzing influence in my writing. I am a more careful researcher. I'm, a, I'm, I'm more paranoid to make sure I'm, I'm dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. And I mean paranoid in a good way. I don't mean in a bad way. I mean like this is this is exactly like you said. It's like a form of peer review. Um, and uh, And sure enough, every time... I do something uh, with professional writing or even with blogging. Um, people, uh, people come, uh, you know, come up with like stuff that I hadn't thought of, and I'm like, oh my goodness! This is this. I, I, I wish I'd known this before I started writing. Oh yeah. In fact, it's actually, in fact, it's changed the way I write because now what I start, I've realized what I, I need to tap into this collective smarts, this generosity of people, in that whenever I'm now when I'm working on a Wired column or something, I just I start tweeting a bit about what it is I'm doing, and people will. Will will raise issues, raise ideas, suggest resources, and it is this absolute intellectual boon uh, to what I'm doing. I, my writing has gotten better because I do more of my thinking in public. And and you you write about in the book that's probably true for anyone who's creating anything because now if you're making a video or whatever, you're going to go on YouTube, you're going to see other examples of what people are making that is similar to what you're thinking about making. And then you might think to yourself, oh my God, somebody's already made that thing. So I need to make something different or better, or I can borrow these techniques or it's, it's at every direction, everyone is feeding off everyone else's production. And so, um, you're more aware of what, what came before you and what is, uh, what your actual peer group is where before you may have, um, just been cut off from all yeah, of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you had to do a lot more reinventing of the wheel because you, you did, you couldn't see any examples of what it is you're trying to do. You couldn't talk to other people about it. Um, this is, I mean, this is, this is really the other great effect that I've found when I talk to people and like, and the thing, the thing about my book that, uh, that, that I, that, uh, that I tried to do when I was writing this was not just to base it in sort of my theory of how the world works, you know, sitting at my desk. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a reporter. So whenever I'm, whenever I, there's something I want to know how, what's going on, I just basically hit the streets and talk to people. Um, and, and, and frankly, you know, a lot of the times what I, what I thought, the way I thought the world worked at my desk would turn out to not quite be the way it does in reality. But the, uh, but the, uh, that's a roundabout way of saying, you know, when I would, the one thing message I heard from people, the more I talked to them was that what the internet was really good at doing was decreasing intellectual isolation, mm-hmm. um, de- de- decreasing the, the, the sense of, wow, I'm the only one who cares about this, or I'm trying to think through this or do this and I can't find anyone else who can show me or help me. Um, th- that's gone to, to the curious person. Um, and not everyone is curious, but to the curious person, this has been an absolute godsend. Um, I know we're about to run out of time. I, I promised uh, someone on, on the Facebook page I would deliver their question directly to you. And uh, sure. this comes from Pete Sessa. 
Um, and his question is, there's like 11 questions, but I'll try to condense it. Um, he wants to know, what does Clive think of iPads for children? Specifically, he believes that there is an argument against iPads because it detracts from FaceTime, hampers emotional development, takes away tactile skills, and um, doesn't allow children to uh, do exploratory play that fosters critical thinking. So... Yeah, uh, he, he's uh, he, he's right. I talk. I, I don't talk about this a lot in my book, so I can unpack it more now. Um, my the research that I've seen and that's generally accepted in child development um, argues that when kids are very young, and we're talking like you know one to like you know sort of five, even uh, even even older, uh, but but certainly when they're very young, a lot of their th- a lot of their thinking is done you know as. Um, uh, um, as uh, Maria Montessori would say, you know, with the hands, with the body, uh, with the eyes. And so it's best, it's, kids learn best with stuff that's very physical. Um, now, iPads are not unphysical, um, but, uh, but really, you know, and you can see this when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're teaching kids counting, when you're teaching them letters, um, having stuff that they manipulate physically, it's a really embodied form of intelligence. So I think that, I, I generally agree when, when educators say that you, sh- you shouldn't rely on screen-based stuff very much in the young ages. It's something to introduce in the older ages when you're starting to get into more abstract thought, um, and forms of research and collaboration that are, you know, uh, that are at a higher level, uh, that are text-based. That's when you can bring in the public thinking. That's when you can bring in the, the you know, the, the interactions with audiences. That's when you can bring in the uh, the interactions with this huge world of knowledge. Um, so, so what what I what I see all the intelligent teachers doing, the ones I classrooms I went to and the successes they were having, was that they ease that stuff in later on. And so I strongly, and 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 the truth is, I mean, I also believe this for adults. Too. I mean, I think I think for we don't stop being physical thinkers. You know, um, the uh, in fact, one of the things that I've found pleasant about about in a weird way YouTube is that it has reintegrated a lot of physical knowledge because you you know like I, I decided I want to build a uh, you know a, a cigar box guitar and um, I had stopped doing wood shop in high school or I guess earlier high school so I buy these high powered tools and I'm like oh my god I'm going to cut my fingers off if I, if I don't you know at least figure out how to use these there's no one around to train me I go into YouTube there's all these all these great people sort of formalizing this very sophisticated physical knowledge and saying here you you know, they're showing me how to use this stuff. It's not as good as being there physically in a workshop being trained, but it's pretty darn good. And so, as I say, I think that's, I think it's no mistake or no surprise or coincidence that the maker movement, um, this, this reintegration of physical intelligence and hand intelligence, uh, w- you know, in, with kids in, in high school and even adults has gone in lockstep with the fact that we can, we can sort of record and show each other um, these, these feats of physical thinking. Um, and I, I, I basically, so I agree with your, I agree with your, um, with, uh, with what your, uh, your the, your correspondent is saying with young kids, and I would extend it even to older older folks. I think it's good for all of us to be doing physical stuff and learning in physical ways. It it all comes back to, and you you talk about this a great deal in the book, is that um, we just we shouldn't just be passive and and let this roll over us. We should figure out the best way to do all these things. Yeah. Um, and that's true for like uh, I say this all the time. Whenever if once you learn about certain aspects of the mind that we that we are pretty sure we understand that it's it, you you become astonished that those things are not then also translating into how we do 
the legal system or politics. Yeah. Like uh, like memory, for example, we were talking about earlier. Like if, if memory is so bad, then how can we still have eyewitness testimony? It's not like we have it. Oh my God! Yeah, we've known yeah. we've yeah. done that for a long, long time. Um, yeah. yeah. But then again, like like you're talking about with the iPad or or YouTube or anything, any of these new tech tools, they're also best practices that you can uh, that are readily available. People have are doing work that tells you. Hey, this is how you should be doing this. This is the best way to do this, and it, we should we, we owe it to ourselves to um, to learn those things as a the, well, and, and, and as a society. And this is and this is the thing is that like, you know, like there has never really been a, a new thinking tool that did not require training and learning and exploration. You know, I mean, like so, you know, the the the, the book you know, is a wonderful thinking tool, but it took, it took a long time of figuring out how to format it. So it worked well. The first books, you know, no paragraph bakes, no, no, no table of contents, no page numbers. And so you read the book and there was no way to go back and re-refer to stuff. And it took like decades, even centuries to formalize that tool into something that would be as suitable for deep reading as for, um, as for sort of flipping through and referring. And, uh, and then, and then when the library came along, I mean, the, a researcher library requires you to, to be trained in how to use it before it will reveal its 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 utility, and and there's really nothing different about our modern world. You're exactly right. It 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 is, behooves all of us, and particularly the educational system, is is where the rubber really hits the road to start figuring out. Uh, and integrating this stuff into the classroom. Right now, it's it's slow. Uh, the best stuff is being done by librarians because they're not hobbled by any curriculum. They can just get a hold of the kids and show them really cool stuff. Uh, but I, I'm pretty confident that uh, that this stuff will un, will unfold um, uh, along those lines. Clyde, I could talk to you about this for 17 hours straight, um, but I've got to stop somewhere. I'm going to stop here. Um, but if somebody wanted to keep up with you online and figure out what you're up to, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, the, the place I'm most active is on Twitter. Uh, I am at Pomeranian99. Uh, that is the little fluffy uh, caramel-colored dog, the Pomeranian um, 99. Uh, and I also uh, blog irregularly at collisiondetection.net. Um, and if, if anyone wants to email me directly, they can email me at clive at clivethompson.net. So those are three ways uh, to go about it. And I'd, I'd love to hear directly from anyone if they have a question or something they want, they want to talk about. That's awesome. And what, are you, and what are you working on right now? What's in the future? Um, I'm doing a story for um, Wired about quantum computing, uh, the world's first quantum computer and and uh, what makes it work. I also have another uh, one or two books that I am in the middle of baking. Uh, I can't talk about them yet because I will, I will spoil everything if I talk about them. But um, once, I, once I know I'm doing them, I'm going to be out there public thinking a ton about them. So <laughs> Great. Well, so thank you so much for coming on. It was wonderful. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for having me out. And now we take a break from our show for a few words from our sponsors. You know that I love to just keep learning about as much as I can, especially when it comes to the brain and psychology and neuroscience. And that's why I'm a big fan of the great courses. And I really, really love their lecture series, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking, taught by Dr. Stephen Novella, Professor of Neurology at Yale. This is such a cool course. And it's not just one video. It's not just two. It's a bunch of videos with an accompanying book with all sorts of information about how your brain really works. It's about thinking about thinking, metacognition, how your brain works to process information and misinformation, and how both of those things 
They shape our thought processes. It has powerful, practical tools to become a stronger, critical thinker in both your personal and professional lives. He's going to talk all about arguing. He's going to talk all about conspiracy theories. You're going to learn an in-depth study of how the brain makes sense of the world, both correctly and incorrectly, and what you can do about the incorrect part of that perception. The Great Courses, right now, celebrating 25 years of giving you things like science courses, history courses, courses on cooking, courses on ancient Greek history, courses on behavioral economics, all sorts of great things. And you can listen to The Great Courses with online downloads, streaming through their apps, on a DVD, on a CD, however you want to put it in your brain. I love them. I want you to check them out. And right now, for a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for just the people that listen to this podcast. Eight of their best-selling courses, including this one, Your Deceptive Mind, at 80% off. Eight, zero. 80% off the original price. But it's a limited time offer. It's a promotional thing. It's going to go away. You're not going to be able to get these things at this price again. You have to do it now. To do it, go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. To order your deceptive mind with my special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. Every once in a while, I need to build a website. I know I want to build it from scratch. I know I want to build something that isn't beholding to anyone like uh, a social media website or to, to any other service where I, my stuff has to live inside their stuff. I don't want that. I want to build something that is just mine. And when I do that, I go to Squarespace because Squarespace, it isn't just easy. There's plenty of easy website making things out there. I don't want easy. I want something that looks great, looks professional. The people on the other end know that I actually cared and I made something that was worth looking at that wasn't just some stuff on the internet with my name on it. That's what Squarespace offers. The sites look professional regardless of your skill level and there's no coding required. It's intuitive. It's easy to use. They have state-of-the-art technology that powers the site on the back end. It ensures security and stability and it's trusted by millions of people already. And this isn't just used by everyday lay people, even though that's fine. It's also used by big respected brands who also want that same level of care and ease of use and just professional appearance. It's just the way to go. It starts at $8 a month. You get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And of course you need a domain name and you're going to use it for more than a year. So you get this free domain name, $8 a month, awesome setup. All you have to do to start a free trial just to see if you like it with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com. And when you sign up for Squarespace, you can use this offer code to get 10% off of your purchase. So smart. That's right. Use the offer code so smart to get 10% off of your first purchase. Seriously, you really can't beat this. Gives you 24-7 online support. If you don't know what you're doing, you can find someone, a living human being, any time of day or night, any day of the week, who will help you figure it out. And you get a free domain name. What are you waiting for? Start your trial today. Start building a website this minute. Go to squarespace.com and use my offer code so smart to get 10% off when you buy that awesome service. We thank you, Squarespace, for your support of You Are Not So Smart. I thank you for making Squarespace so that my other website stuff can look good. It's Squarespace. Build it beautiful. 
And now we return to our program. In each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I talk about some self-delusion news. I read a bit of a recent study, something like that, before I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener. Now, this episode's self-delusion news comes from Duke University. Duke News just put out a press release this week about some research put together by Scott Hutel and his team. Scott Hutel, you may recall, is one of the presenters in one of our great courses series, the one about behavioral economics. And I had no idea that was true until I got deeper into the reading about this. And I think that's really cool. And the headline is, teens are not always irrational. And this research, it appears in the October-December issue of Cognitive Development. In the research that I'm looking at here in the press release, it says that the idea behind their study was that we often think of teenagers as being not that great at rational decision-making. In general, they're looked at as being more irrational than the rest of the population. But this study found that in teenagers, in people ages 10 to 16, actually, that's how they frame it in the research, in people ages 10 to 16, they tend to make much more analytical and rational economic choices when facing the same problems as people in their early 20s. Hutel says in the release that the difference comes down to heuristics, these simple rules that people use to make choices very quickly without much thought. For instance, he uses the example of as we get older, we might depend on the don't drink and drive heuristic to decide whether or not to get in a car with someone who is obviously drunk. Like we don't actually even think about the decision. We're just like drunk, no. And though we could think about it, that we could weigh the costs versus the benefits of our decision, we don't. We depend on a rule. Teenagers, on the other hand, he said, rarely use those rules. That comes later in life. And in that situation, they would weigh the costs versus the benefits. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's very bad because they're usually biased in the direction of reward, much more sensitive to reward. So if the reward seems great, they may become much more likely to go with it, more enticed by the reward as it outweighs the potential costs. In this research, though, he and his team put together, uh, to put teenagers and 20-somethings together into a variety of situations where they had to choose from one of several scenarios. Each one of these scenarios had a chance of winning or losing a small amount of money. So it'd be like one-third of the time you will win $6. One-third of the time you will win $4. One-third of the time you will lose $4. And then there was another situation like that that was a little bit different, another situation that was a little bit different. And they had to pick the one that they liked the best. Which one were they were they going to go for based on the odds of winning and losing? He found that 20-somethings always leaned on simple rules after they sort of got a gist of what was going on. 20-somethings would reach a general understanding of the situation, and then they would go with their guts, while the teenagers never did that. They remained attentive to the details through and through, and they paid attention to all the possible outcomes throughout the experiment. Now, the 20-somethings, they would ignore things that seemed to be irrelevant, and they would try to reduce that situation to something manageable very early on, which is something that all adults do, and you start to learn how to do that in your 20s, apparently. While the teenagers, they, they seem to be not doing that yet, unable to do it even. The result in this experiment was that the teens made much more economically rational choices. Now, that's because this scenario was set up to be that kind of thing. It would play against people who tried to just go with their gut. You really needed to pay attention to the details. 
that tendency in other scenarios might not be so great. We don't always have the time. We have to depend on heuristics for so many things. And teens, of course, are more risk-seeking overall. And the flip side is that they're much more aware of potential rewards. So since they're much more aware of potential rewards, there are some scenarios where their decisions will lead to the best possible outcomes because they are more able to see those good outcomes. They are more sensitive to them. They accept them more readily. They are looking for them more often. So what is the takeaway from this? Well, Scott Hittell and his team, they say, you know, of course, we always have to say with anything like this, this is one study, lots more research has to be done. Who knows where this is going to end up? You have to try to replicate all that stuff. But the hope is that this is going to lead to a better understanding of the different ways that people think at different ages. And in this specific instance, it may lead to better coaching methods for people at different ages. So methods that are designed for one group of people, the teenagers, will be different from the methods that we use to teach and coach people who are a little bit older. And that means better coaching for all groups. If you would like to read more, you can find the original research at Science Direct under the title, The Rational Adolescent. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's On good each episode of the You Are Not So Smart C podcast, I read a piece cookie. of self-delusion news or a scientific study before I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe... My wife, Amanda, she actually bakes all the cookies. You get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. But we are going to move all of those recipes over to their own website soon. But for now, they're over at the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. Okay. This episode's cookie comes from Jay Ahern. He sent in this recipe with a note saying that he had listened to the podcast, has been binging on every single one of them after stumbling upon one in his internet surfings, and he just wanted to send a note saying how much he liked it. He's reading the books now, all that stuff. As a token of his appreciation, he writes, here's a recipe for Ma Cooper cakes, stolen from my good friend, Rich Cooper. I don't know if I like this already. You're stealing from other people. But if it's delicious, who cares? He says... They're basically equal parts Mars bars, butter, mar and marshmallows gently heated until they're melted. And then you mush in cornflakes and rolled oats. And then you turn them into cookies and you bake them. Um, he says they are dangerous. Okay, look. We looked everywhere for Mars bars. Could not find them. The clerk told us that you won't find them. That's now considered Snickers almond. So that's what we use. So there's a little bit of advice for everyone. Here's what they look like. They look like a oatmeal-covered star crunch. You know what I'm talking about? Those little Debbie things, star crunches? I'm thinking, I mean, they also feel like that. Maybe they. Maybe this is where those came from. I don't know. Anyway, listen, listen to me, Jay. I'm going to try this, all right? You tell Rich Cooper, McCraney sends his regards. All right, here we go. Oh, wow. Chewy. Tough from Chewy. Oh, I'm dead, I'm dead. Hmm, lots of chewing on this one. Hold on. Oh, yeah. 
players. Players that scene at the end of 2001 is happening right now in my mouth. Mm. Mm-hmm. I see the star baby, the star crunch baby floating past the outer moons of Jupiter. Oh my God. All of these cookies are yours except Europa. <laughs> Do not land there. Oh my. I'm going to eat the rest of this cookie. I don't care. I took a bite. I'm taking the last bite. They're two bite cookies. Hold on. You stay right there. I'll be right back. Oh, yeah. I see myself as an old man looking at a big block. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, man. I just threw the monkey. <laughs> I just threw the bone <laughs> as a monkey. A proto-human threw this cookie up in the air. Next scene, we were flying in spaceships. Oh, man. This is the ultimate, like, simple, like, no, all you do is take the Snickers, <laughs> Snickers almond butter and marshmallows, melt that into a goop, pour some cornflakes in there and some oats, and you're done. Well, you're not done. You have to let it become a cookie. But it's not complicated. Oh, man. It's so good. It's ridiculous. This is... um. It tastes just like a star crunch, except you know how when you actually make something at home, it's much better than the than the thing in the store. That's what this is. This is if you want to make a homemade star crunch, this is where it came from. Great. Fantastic. You will immediately fly into another dimension and see yourself as an old uh, individual uh, at the end of your life, and you will touch the young you in the, on the hand, and then you'll see yourself floating in space as a large fetus. They're that good. I want you to get these... Jay Ahern, if that is your real name, I commend you. Tell Rich Cooper what you've done. I'm going to send you, I will send, I'm going to email you, okay? And if Rich Cooper wants a book, I'll send you both a book. Signed books headed your way. Thank you so much. You have made my afternoon. These are so good. I'm going to pass them out to my friends. Oh, star crunches made from your house. Actually, Ma Cooper. They're Ma Cooper cakes, so... Let's give the credit where it's due, since you did steal this from Rich Cooper. They were great. Thank you so much. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. This podcast was brought to you by these patrons at Patreon. Jerry Wells, Matijahan, James Coons, Dylan Edwin Hoover, Matt Dillahunty, James Dean, Michael Berman, Sam Mee, Skarian Rye, Eric Jones, Jay Gurian, Tamara Nimje, Lala Hulse, David Forsyth, Greg Stearns, Ed Twist, Marsha Davis, Philip Spawn, Yasmin Kashef, Cindy Flanagan, Ryan Miller, Joanne Kramer, Thomas Harl, Jonathan Dean, and just plain old Lucas. I'll mention more patrons next episode. For more podcasts like this, go to boingboing.net. For all the previous episodes, go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or the website youarenotsosmart.com. This music is Banjo Apocalypse. The music at the beginning is Clash by Caravan Palace.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.